that is the advice I would give young people is like, look, experiment with your career, hack yourself a career. That's certainly what I did as a hacker um, is I, I made it up as I went along. And um, I tried to listen to myself when something wasn't serving me as a person, you know, and, and for my career. I'm George Comedy, and this is First Watch. Welcome to the last episode in our series of interviews celebrating Women's History Month. Today, we have a very special episode. It seemed only fitting to close out the month by handing over the mic to two incredible women in this industry. My friend, Katie Hanahan, takes the mic as guest host, and she is joined by none other than Katie Masuris, founder and CEO of Luta Security. A lifelong hacker, Katie Masuris's reputation is legion in cybersecurity. She was the pioneering creator of Microsoft's bug bounty program, as chronicled in Nicole Perloff's bestseller, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. She helped the Department of Defense create its first bug bounty program and previously served as chief policy officer at HackerOne. I could go on, but let's get into it with Katie Hanahan and Katie Masuris. So here we are in this conversation that I'm so excited about. And I have to say, um, you know, when we talked about what we might want to cover today, uh, if we wanted to, you know, really focus on what you're doing about, you know, bug bounty, what you're doing in, in your company um, and, and supporting our, our government and, and government, uh, glo governments globally to be able to solve for a problem that we all wake up every day to solve for. And then, you know, really following your career and understanding what you're doing now, I'm just 100% intrigued in what got you to this point, right? So bug bounty programs to me where I am in my career, have it's just something that goes like sneezing or um, waking up in the morning. Like I did not understand that there had to be a pioneer in this area of our industry. And, and then when I came to discover it was you and someone I kind of know now, and, and um, but I really want to understand where did that come from? What was that moment for you where you thought, here's an ethical way that we can solve for a problem and provide, you know, an opportunity for people to also have a fiscal gain and take people from what is kind of a gray area or maybe even the dark side over to our side to say, we're altruistically trying to change this industry and trying to change the world. Tell me what that looked like from its fundamental foundation for you when you had this moment. And I believe it was at Microsoft, um, but correct me if I'm wrong. Well, it started a lot earlier than Microsoft for me because I'm a hacker. That's that's how I identify. That's kind of how I live my life. And um, all the other things that I am on top of being a hacker, I've always been a hacker and I always will be a hacker. And actually, it's funny that you brought up Clubhouse where we met because I hacked Clubhouse. Uh, you know? and, well, and, of course I Yes. <laughs> right. You know, because I can't help it. Sometimes you accidents happen is how I like to put it. Um, and that one was actually a accident. I was poking around, but not expecting to find anything. And lo and behold, I did. But um, so in terms of bug bounties at Microsoft, uh, we're about to celebrate the 10 year anniversary of my launch of the first bug bounty programs ever at Microsoft. Um, but it wasn't the first bug bounty programs in the industry at all. So I didn't invent bug bounties as a concept. Um, you know, I think the earliest examples are of uh, Don Newth um, 
who basically said, if you find an error in my book about C programming, um, you know, I'll send you some money. Right. And it was people would frame the checks because it would be, you know, be small amounts typically. Um, but that was, you know, sort of the the industry accepted first bug bounties um, historically. And then following that, there was um, the Mozilla browser. So um, it was or it was the Netscape browser, and then it was basically um, absorbed and turned into the Mozilla browser. So it was the Netscape browser in the mid-1990s that was, you know, the first bug bounty. And it was $500 if you could find a security hole um, in the in the Netscape browser. And um, that was pretty much it. And there was nothing new under the bug bounty sun until 2010 when Google launched their first bug bounty program. And they started out really small. And a lot of people don't really understand that even a giant megacorp with tons of resources, tons of security people, um, even Google who likes to, you know, kind of like Facebook move fast and break things, right? Even a company like that, they had to start out small. So they started out with bounties uh, at a little over $1,000. And I remember my friends and colleagues at Google teasing me because I was at Microsoft and they were saying, we know you guys are never going to pay bug bounties. And I'm like, just, just give me a little while to work on this problem. And um, it was a complex problem. Microsoft to this day is still the biggest intake funnel of vulnerability reports of any organization or government worldwide. They are receiving upwards of a quarter million to over 350,000 non-spam email messages a year coming in to secure at Microsoft.com, which is their email address for reporting security holes. And if you think about it, a software giant, the biggest software company in the world at the time, um, because remember, mobile devices weren't as huge of a platform at that time, right? So we didn't have the Android ecosystem that we have today. We didn't even have the iPhone e ecosystem that we have today because iPhones in 2010 were two years old, right? So we just didn't have the app ecosystem outside of the desktop at that point in time historically. So how to turn this concept that Microsoft basically looked at and said, why would we do that when we're getting all these bug reports for free? Like what advantage would it give us, you know, except having us pay out? And my problem to solve was one, how to basically ease into bug bounties at a scale like that when you're the biggest software company in the world, but also how do we use these monetary incentives to take an already eager group of hacker eyeballs and focus them on the places where we needed them to focus the most. So that was kind of, you know, that was the evolution of it. And it wasn't really a moment per se. If, if I were to point to a moment, it was when my mom bought me my first computer, which was a Commodore 64 when I was eight years old and I had no friends who were interested in it. So I sat in my room and taught myself how to program in basic when I was eight you know, eight years old. Um, so that would have been like the moment for me of, of realizing like, I'm probably going to do something with these machines, you know, in the future. Um, but of course, at eight years old, you don't know anything about what your life is going to turn out like um, at the time. And then I'd say my guiding philosophy through all of these career changes and the things that I've motivated myself to try and do and motivated governments to try and adopt as well are all around the principles of I like to hack things. So do my friends. And we would like to do this and stay out of jail, number one, and get paid for it, number two. So that's pretty much the, the simplistic philosophy that, 
that has guided a lot of my work. Um, and then once we launched hack, uh, once we launched the bug bounty programs at Microsoft, all of a sudden the Department of Defense, the you know the Pentagon was like, hey, we're really curious about this. We didn't peg Microsoft to be the you know first other major vendor to be launching bug bounties. You know we thought maybe it would be like an Apple thing or an Amazon thing after Google kind of led by by example. So we were surprised, you know. And at your scale, why don't you come start briefing us about it? So that was when I started talking to the Pentagon. I was still working at Microsoft at the time, so again about a decade ago. And then it took about three years of talking to and advising the Pentagon um, between the launch of Microsoft's bug bounty programs in 2013 to the launch of the very first um, bug bounty program of the U.S. Department of the Defense called Hack the Pentagon. So it's kind of like the story in a nutshell of how those bug bounties gained mainstream acceptance to the point where the biggest military that the world has ever seen was like, actually, we would like some hackers to help us secure our system. So and that was seven years ago. That was uh, on the heels of that is how I started my company, Luta Security. Um, and we help governments and large organizations kind of, you know, deal with the fact that having a way to report vulnerabilities to you is just the very beginning. Just knowing about the bugs is such a small part of the effort that goes into managing these programs correctly. Um, and the last thing I ever want to see is what I call bug bounty Botox, right, where organizations are like, we care about your security. We have a bug bounty program and it literally goes nowhere. It is surface deep. They've got, you know, they're not fooling anybody. They're not pretty on the inside. And so we really work hard to make organizations, um, you know, prove that they take security seriously by actually helping them with those internal processes. So that's where Luda then comes in for an organization that wants to at least adopt this principle um, and what I think I heard you say is that many organizations just just adopt it on, on a, a top level, but don't know what to do. Um, and one of the one of the things in researching, you know, in this interview is that you seem to have a concise and 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 really, uh, you know, an opportunity for companies that are not necessarily, um, you know, a hundred or 150 or a hundred thousand people deep in their IT, you know, infrastructure team to be able to actually take the things that you're using um, and what you're applying. I think it was the, the five proactive steps of your, you know, what to do then, you know, once you actually go in and you identify, it was one of the things to me that was most, you know, as a practitioner myself, you know, it's it, that to me is what's most beneficial is that moment when I'm able to actually say, okay, I know everything that's wrong now. I already knew everything was, you know, and, and I think every other CISO or any other, you know, leader in, um, you know, any type of, uh, organization today would say, we know that there are things that are wrong, but what are the best ways to measure that? And then once we know what they are, how do we prioritize what to do? And I, what I really love about what you're doing at Luda and what I'd love to really understand a little bit better is how you take those things, you know, into the market um, how you've applied that to government, if you can, if you can talk about it, um, because I, those are the things that I find most fascinating as a practitioner myself, who's still, you know, in the ocean swimming around and figuring out how do I stack rank the risk and the priority every single day for me and my team. Um, and I think you seem to have a pretty good grasp on that. Um, and we touched on your background and probably why that is. But can you dig into what those principles are and kind of how you practically um, do that for companies and governments every day? 
Yeah, well, we use what I call the vulnerability coordination maturity model. Totally rolls off the tongue. I've told uh, you know my colleagues that you shouldn't let me name things in the future. These are these are terrible names, but the VCMM for short um, is really the process that we use. It's a maturity model, five capability areas, and it's not just engineering because a lot of people think, well, my bug bounty program or my vulnerability disclosure program its success or failure just depends on whether or not I've got engineers ready to fix the problem. That is actually only part of the problem. And what we found as the best predictors of bug bounty program success is actually organizational and communication capabilities. So how well supported does your organization actually feel, you know, in practice? How many resources have they actually dedicated to not just throwing these bugs to the engineers who have, you know, plenty of other jobs in terms of shipping actual code, right? Their job isn't to fix bugs. Their job is to design, you know, design and and write new code for new features, et cetera. So it's not just about the organization saying to the engineers, you have to fix the bugs that come in through the bug bounty program, but it's really about those higher level security investments. If you think about bugs as symptoms of underlying security disease, they can actually point towards missing security practices. So that's a lot of what we do with the VCMM. We do a maturity assessment. We hone in on some of the things that are lacking from an overall organization perspective in those five capability areas. And then we give a roadmap for improvement that isn't all about improving everything across the board at once, it's really prioritized to how do we get you to the next stage so that you're not making the same kinds of coding mistakes over and over again and get you into a good spot so that your bug bounty program isn't one, haunted with all of these reports of you know of the same bug over and over again, right? Um, and two, that it's not, you know, basically covered with low-hanging fruit that you should have found yourself or even better should have prevented yourself. So we really like to take that, um, you know, holistic approach to security. And, you know, again, I don't want people starting bug bounties if they haven't taken a look at their internal security investments first. I think it's, you know, it's it's a waste of time and money. And it's the fastest way to burn out your security team. How does a company determine uh, beyond when they know they're ready? Uh, what is the threshold and value? That's the thing that I, I always, again, struggle with the risk, the reward, you know, what do we want to know? What don't we want to know? What does the board want to know, not want to know? What do these bug bounty programs potentially expose to an organization that could create a a significant amount of risk, even as it relates to their cybersecurity insurance renewals and that type of thing? Well, you know, typically what we see in cybersecurity insurance is just, do you have a bug bounty program or not? And it's very surface level. Most insurance companies have absolutely no idea how to rate cyber risk. So we're not seeing any improvement in that in that um, perspective, from that perspective. But what I would say is that if you want to demonstrate the value of your bug bounty program to your board um, and your executives, it's really about saying, you know, not how many bugs are we getting through the program or how much have we paid out. All of those things are more um, budgeting metrics, right? You know, um, what you really want to see is an improvement of the number and severity of the vulnerabilities over time, because that tells you that 
you are actually learning from your mistakes. So give an example, um, cross-site scripting is a well-understood vulnerability class. There are a number of automated tools that can help you identify cross-site scripting, right? It's also one of the most easily preventable um, classes of vulnerabilities if you are using secure development practices. So if you are having a bug bounty program where you start out with a bunch of low-hanging fruit, like cross-site scripting, um, that's very easy to find and identify, and you over time show that fewer and fewer of that low-hanging fruit vulnerability type is found because you introduced you know, some additional developer training, some uh, centralization of some sanitation functions so that your developers have a better chance at you know, uh, going about um, gathering input in, in a way that is safer and more correct, um, then you can show over time that your investments in this overall program have led to you know, better and ongoing success of your security program. But it is not something that you know, typically organizations will see a return on their investment immediately. They do have to actually you know, plan this out and start measuring. And when we come in to do a vuln coordination maturity model assessment, when we come in and do a VCMM assessment, we'll often ask organizations, even if they haven't started a bug bounty program yet, you know, some data about how well are they fixing, you know, vulnerabilities that they already know about, how fast are they doing it, what is the severity of typical vulnerabilities that they're, you know, that they find out that they're exposed to either through their own pen testing efforts or some other means. And then we basically can can predict how well they're going to do with a bug bounty program based on some of their answers and some of their data about what they're doing right now. But um, you had asked earlier about, you know, bug bounties being no brainers. I think that's a mistake, you know, from the industry. And I think it's been a very well marketed um, advanced technique in security that has been, you know, erroneously marketed as a no brainer that everyone should do it. I absolutely don't think everyone should be running a bug bounty program. And actually, I don't even think everyone is ready for a vulnerability disclosure program. And that is a very controversial thing to say, especially coming from the person who co-authored and co-edited the international standards on how to run a vulnerability disclosure program um, and vulnerability handling processes. But it is the reality. You know, if you think about it, you, you know, if you're hungry, you might order food um, and that is a way to get fed, right? Is ordering food from outside. But everybody knows that's not a really sustainable or healthy way to live, right? You do need to start cooking at home, right? You need to start monitoring your sodium and, and et cetera intake. So people who just think like, oh yeah, just start a bug bounty, just start one right away as soon as you possibly can, just get a sense of those bugs that are out there. That is the worst way to start your security program. And I just want to make sure that everyone listening understands, um, yeah, we're in the business of bug bounties and helping bug bounties, uh, you know, be created and, and well run. But um, nine times out of 10, if an organization comes to me and says, we got, we finally got budget approval for a bug bounty program, I'll ask them, how many people do you have supporting your security program right now? And if they say, oh, it's just me or it's part of my job or whatnot, I say, you are not ready for a bug bounty program. You are missing some investments and personnel well before you are ready to start a bug bounty. We'll be back in a moment. If you missed any interviews in the First Watch series for Women's History Month, you can now find all episodes collected in a playlist on Spotify. Now, back to our conversation between guest host Katie Hannan and guest Katie Masuris. 
I really appreciate that you 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 brought it home with that because it was why I asked the question because um, having gone into I I, I was in a, a VC so role for a, a while right so you're going into multiple organizations and they're asking you well what do I do what do I do well you know one of the first things we would do is then that you know cybersecurity maturity assessment kind of thing and see where we are then um, and and there are uh, probably a ninety percent I would say no we would not want to invest in a bug bounty program at this point because we would uh, all of our IT budget would would be flooded with um, paying out bug bounty. Uh, we need to get ready first, and that's one of the things that in researching your company that I really appreciated is it seems like you do differentiate. You don't do just a cybersecurity maturity model. You do the VCC. It's VCCM, correct? That's the right VCMM yeah. vulnerability coordination maturity model. So that's that's what the acronym stands for. Yeah. No, like I said, don't let me name anything is what I've told my team. I'm well, like, I'm, I think it's actually yeah. a really great name. And I think it's it does instructive. Yeah, yeah, it differentiates though, Katie, <laughs> because it's, it's, you know, there are so many things that are um, not productive that might give you a baseline, but they don't necessarily give you a proactive approach. And that's what I found really interesting. And that's why, you know, again, kind of in um, digging into your story, I was really curious about, you know, you do approach this problem differently. You approach this problem so differently that not one, not two, but I think at least three, uh, you know, federal government agencies have approached you to be on their advisory boards. I get a kick out of, you know, seeing you, I don't know if it's LinkedIn or Instagram or wherever it is where I'm, you know, I see you having a seat at the table with um, the leaders in our in our industry who are speaking at the highest level of government, um, I want to understand again, and I, I and I believe, you know, again, just somebody who follows you, reads what you uh, have to say, listens to podcasts that you've been on, that you approach this problem differently. You have a different approach. I'd love to understand a little bit more where that comes from. Well, I think it's an you know, it's it's not one single answer, right? Is um, what I would say, and. One, I think a big part of um, how I approach these problems is I look at it as a system dynamics problem, right? So if you think of system dynamics um, in shorthand as like the butterfly effect, something small you do over here may have a rippling effect over there. Um, and when I think about what are we actually trying to achieve in security? Why are we doing a bug bounty program? You know, um, it is really to improve the security over time, right? Not just to pay hackers money, which I love that, right? Being a hacker myself, it's not just to provide legal safe harbor and say, it's okay if you hack us, we'll appreciate you, you know, in some, uh, in some way. That's another just, you know, happy side effect of this whole thing. But we're really looking at it as, I care about the technology that runs our world, you know, um, and I care about it to the extent that I want it to get more secure over time. I stopped being a professional penetration tester, a professional hacker for hire, because I was sick of going into organizations that would pay us under non-disclosure agreement, and then we'd come back in one quarter or a year or however long it was, and all the same bugs are still there, right? So they were satisfying their regulatory compliance of get an external pen test um, every year or every quarter, however much they had to do it. And then they were just checking the box and moving on. And so when I approach the bug bounty problem, it's just crowdsourced pen testing with 
again, you know, the same implementation problems as traditional pen testing, if, for example, like the bug bounty platforms have done, is try to commoditize control, right? They've tried to basically say, join our platform and we will control this crowd for you. We will control all the hackers for you. They are bound by the program terms of the platform and they will not disclose issues that you haven't fixed, right? That's actually a violation of the principles of vulnerability disclosure. There's the word disclosure in there for a reason, but a lot of these bug bounty platforms have really like taken it and tried to commoditize that piece. And it's actually at the expense of security improving. You know, we've seen these platforms in operation for more than a decade at this point, right? Bug Crowd, Hacker One, they've been around for a decade. They've had hundreds of millions of dollars pumped into them from the VC community because they were basically a gig economy platform for cybersecurity, right? It made sense that they had some of the same initial investors as Uber, Lyft, Instacart, the same investors um, going for these uh, gig economy cybersecurity jobs. but. Um, you know, kind of back to your original question is, why do I approach this so differently? One, because we are living in a world that's dependent on this technology. And in my 25 plus year cybersecurity professional career, I have not seen us grow out of infantile classes of vulnerabilities. And I'm sick of it. And everybody else should be too. This, this approach is imperative for us to actually make a difference and a change and to move the needle. Um, and so I, I really appreciate that. From from that perspective, um, you know, as as leaders now, I'm kind of mid-career, you know, myself and, you know, I'm thinking about what can I do to ensure that I am bringing these creative thinkers to solve for these problems that you and I both clearly care about? How do we encourage these People coming into the market at 25, 18, whatever, you know, 30 even, how do we encourage them to have a voice? And did you have people who gave you that opportunity to have a voice? Um, well, let's see. At the beginning of my career, I wasn't a professional hacker because there was no such thing, right? Um, we're talking uh at this point, we're talking about, I don't know, close to 30 years ago. Um and uh, yeah, so I was a molecular biologist at the beginning of my professional career, um, and I worked on bioinformatics for the Human Genome Project. So I think, you know, I will say that I had an amazing mentor at that time. Um, he has passed on um, F cancer. I'm going to bleep myself on that one. But um, his name was Bob Bruin, Dr. Robert Bruin. And um I grew up in Arlington, Massachusetts. He was a Medford kid, you know, so he kind of saw a lot of himself in me of, of you know, uh, a kid from a local small town in Massachusetts. Um, not a lot of economic opportunities at our, you know, given socioeconomic levels. And the fact that technology opened up a world of possibilities for us. Um, I would say that I didn't listen to any of his advice really at the time and I should have, um, but he was encouraging me at the time. Um, he actually, you know, cause I met him in my early twenties and he was 50, which is close to the age I am now, which is very, very funny. But he said, listen, you don't have to wait 
for anything. You should just start your own company. You'd make a great CEO. And I didn't listen to the man until 20 years later when I was in my early 40s and I finally started this company, um, Luta Security, seven years ago. And um, so, you know, I wish I had listened to Bob, right, uh, back back then. And I think the I think the kids today, oh my God, I'm sounding exactly like a grandma, but I do think the young people today coming in, um, one, they understand that they don't have as many socio or as many opportunities to climb the socioeconomic ladder through the traditional job, you know, college to job to, you know, climb, climb the corporate ladder. I think they recognize that they don't have the same opportunities. Um, they don't have uh, really any hope of owning their own home unless they come from generational wealth. Um, and so I think they're much more willing to experiment with their careers. And that is the advice I would give young people is like, look, experiment with your career, hack yourself a career. That's certainly what I did as a hacker um, is I, I made it up as I went along. And um, I tried to listen to myself when something wasn't serving me as a person, you know, and, and for my career. Um, the thing I tell people who work for me, and actually part of our philosophy at Luta Security is we believe in labor rights and labor mobility. So we not only have a four day, 32 hour work week for all of our FTEs, um, but we do take, you know, a couple of two week long vacations per year, company wide, you know, for the FTEs. And, um, but I also tell, you know, all the contractors and the FTEs that it's written into our managed services contracts that if at the end of the contract, our customer wants to hire you away from us, that not only is that okay, but we actually build it into the contracts to get a recruiting and restaffing fee for it. And I'm so convinced that, you know, essentially um, people should serve themselves when it comes to their careers. And uh, so far, so good. You know, no, none of our FTEs have taken us up on it um, in the years of operation where we've had this. Um, and, you know, honestly, some of the contractors who are presented with the opportunity, they even say things like, yeah, but I really like working with Luta and the variety and what we're learning here and stuff like that. So even some of the contractors have expressed concern about potentially taking a full time role at some of our clients. Um, anyway, that was a very long-winded answer, but I think you were really looking for, you know, what's my real take on this? And this is as real as, you know, as I can possibly be um, in telling you all of this. Well, and I really appreciate your transparency there. And, you know, you, you said a couple of things that I, I literally, I, I did get a, a couple of tears. That's why I was doing this because you said, hack your own career you know, and do things that you need, you know, and that even that, you know, early on in your career, someone said, you have this. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, because you've been in the industry a while, I've been in the industry a while. And like I said, I, I wanted to mention, I kind of tripped into it because, you know, I don't have a traditional background. Um, I don't have a, you know, from, from, I always think about diversity as more than anything. It's, it's, it's socioeconomic. It's, it could be anything, right? Um, Women in our industry in mid-career seem to be struggling to get to those executive positions. We're seeing an influx in, you know, in in the uh, women who are entering the career, and 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 I, I I'm so thankful for that. I'm even struggling. I mean, just to be transparent with you, you were very transparent with me. I'm struggling. I have a you know, you know, VP position kind of level senior director kind of person and as a practitioner, I, I end up 
running into people who are saying, well, but you don't have this and you don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I, again, don't want to make this up to be about a woman conversation. I'm asking you as a CEO of a company that seems to really put your employees first and, and retain your employees. Um, and, and what I'd love to understand is your advice to women who are now in this mid-career you already talked about you started your own business in your early 40s. Is our only path starting our own business to have a seat at the table? Or are there ways that we can be better um, and, and, and come to the table with our expertise and be more vocal or whatever it is? I would love to hear your advice for someone like me in this stage of my career. Well, okay. So I don't have advice for women to solve this problem because it is not our problem to solve. We did not create it. And it's not our burden to solve this problem for ourselves. We can't do more like negotiating and whatnot. All the myths of women don't negotiate. And that's why women don't take on bigger projects because we have small children, as you you know ex- um, explained and everything. That's not why men with small children, you know, they they get promoted, right? Um, So this isn't our problem to solve. And uh, I would actually give the advice to men who care about um, not just diversity and inclusion, men who care about driving correct and profitable results need to care about this because uh, that should be everyone, you know, but um, but the wake up call here is for men. Um, So I would say the advice is for men to help, um, you know, one point out when women are being overlooked for bigger projects, bigger roles, et cetera, men to share their compensation um, very openly and transparently, especially with peer women, so that they can help address the pay inequity problem. Um, some states have taken it upon themselves you know, to try to close that gap a little bit by requiring employers to post their uh, salary ranges publicly. So Washington state where I live is one of those states, Colorado is one as well. Um, so effectively, you know, if you are, and you're not legally allowed to say in a job posting, no California or sorry, no Colorado people and no Washington people so that we just don't have to post the salary ranges, you know, and the benefit ranges. But when we posted recently, um, you know, for for hiring and everything, we posted our salary ranges on our benefit range um, and everything for the job roles. And I went to check, um, you know, the, uh, you know, bug bounty platforms, because a lot of the the job duties were similar, right? It was technical triage type of of roles. So they have those roles posted as well. So here's what I found. HackerOne had none of their salary ranges posted. So they are not in compliance with US law right now. Maybe they'll fix it after hearing this podcast. I don't know. Um, And then BugCrowd was only hiring triage outside of the US. So they also didn't post their, their salary ranges. And um, so anyway, I think that this is a systemic problem. It is not just the cybersecurity industry, but all industries. And especially um, in cybersecurity, I think right now it's what, maybe 30% of all STEM roles at all are, are staffed by women. So clearly this isn't our problem. We're in the minority in this industry. Why, why should the minority be burdened with, um, with having to solve the problem? Um, and then the last thing I, you know, wanted, last point I want to drive home about this is that getting more women and more historically underrepresented people into a given industry 
does not solve the real problem. It doesn't make things better for the women and the other historically underrepresented people who join that industry when there are more of them. All it does is lower the average compensation. So the real root of this problem is pay equity. So until we have pay equity, it doesn't matter how many women you have. You could have 100% women cybersecurity workforce, and suddenly the average pay for a cybersecurity worker will drop because we are valued and our work is valued less. So that's why I started the Pay Equity Now Foundation when my attempted class action gender discrimination lawsuit against Microsoft failed to be certified as a class action. Um, and it's not because we didn't have the data to show they were underpaying women. We did, but we live in a state that doesn't have uh, specific laws like California does, where if the numbers don't lie, that group is certified as a class, right? So Google recently had to settle a gender class action lawsuit similar to mine because that lawsuit was brought in California. And the fact that we do not have equal protection, equal justice under the law to protect our right to pay equity, that's a problem that needs to be taken up, probably not by this Supreme Court because they're not, not doing us any favors right now, but it does need to be taken up by the courts. Um, and so I, uh, with the Pay Equity Now Foundation, I started a, uh, a law lab at Penn State Law called the Manglona, uh, the Manglona Lab, and that's named after my late mom who was underpaid her entire life. And uh, the purpose of that law lab is to one, you know, work on cases like, you know, kind of like mine were and, and provide some, some support there for litigants, but also to look at laws and their variants state by state. So ultimately the goal here is to get us equal protection for equal pay um, actually enforced under the law. And if you're curious as to why it's not enforced, even though technically it's illegal, right, to pay people differently for the same job, it's technically illegal, is there was a bad Supreme Court uh, ruling a few years back that said um, with Walmart, Walmart was accused of gender and racial discrimination in pay and promotions. They got out of it because the Supreme Court said, you know what, that was just a bunch of individual racist, sexist managers. Walmart didn't have an overarching policy to pay these people less. They, they, they didn't have it on company letterhead saying pay the women and the brown people less. But so they basically let Walmart, the corporation, get away with knowingly underpaying women and other historically marginalized people less because they could blame it on individual managers. And if you think about the logic of that, that means that no corporation will ever be liable again at the federal level for systemically underpaying and underpromoting uh, under women and people of color. So that's why I started Pay Equity Now Foundation, and that's why I don't think we are going to solve this problem by getting more historically marginalized people into any industry. We have to solve the pay equity problem first. Are there resources um, that, that people could go to that and you can point to uh, through your, your Penn State, uh, your pay equity now uh Program is there a are there resources available that we can point our listeners to? I I would love to tell you that there is like some national resource for people, but there really isn't. You know what I mean? And that's that's the whole point of why I started this foundation is because no one else was trying to deliberately bend the arc of history towards justice in this area, right? Like there are a number of different 
you know, organizations that say they work on pay equity, but where are we finding results in changing the laws? Um, so if somebody lived in Missouri, unfortunately, they're probably out of luck, right? Like, just like I was out of luck living in Washington state with all these technology companies here, there's no chance that any woman or underrepresented person can get a class action certified um, in this state because we're, we're out of luck. So I would say it's not really resources that I would point to. It's point to your, um, you know, your, your state and local legislators. Mm -hmm. And more importantly than that, get involved, run for something, become your state and local legislator, become the lawmaker that will change this. What you said about I started my own business. This is this is what I decided to do because the there was a gap there, right? What's wrong with um, you know, with us encouraging a woman or a man, whoever, to to run for office, to be able to make the change and be the change that we want to see in the world. I have that I mean, I know I, everybody probably wants their children to see that. I literally have it hanging in my kitchen because I want my children every day to, to understand, to be the change that they want to see in the world. And so if it is that we need to be that much more engaged with local politics, I find that to be really encouraging to hear. Well, and it's very much a hacker's approach, right? It's like, I don't like what that button does. Let me make it do something else. Uh-huh. So it is very much, you know, my philosophy and all, all the things that I, that I do that I approach is that, you know, I see a system designed to have a particular outcome. I don't like it. And so I have to, I have to find a workaround. I have to understand how it works in order to change it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, you know, probably how I'm going to live my life until uh, I retire and I, um, I don't really see myself retiring effectively anytime soon, just because even though I have enough money, you know, I can retire. I'm very fortunate in that regard. I'm still hacking capitalism, right? Like I am still building a company that ideally is, is going to be a model for other companies to have to compete with. It's like, oh, you don't believe in paying everybody a, a you know, a living wage? Well, guess what? my company does, you know, oh, you don't believe in paying people that you are actively training for a technology job? Well, my company does, you know, and uh, yes, we can be profitable. Actually, we've been more profitable since moving to a four-day, 32-hour work week. So the idea that a startup has to underpay you under the market rate or, um, you know, if you're an intern or an apprentice, that you have to, you know, basically, again, live on subsistence, you know, level hourly wages um, in order for you to gain the experience. That's also just a false narrative, you know, and I think that re-architecting and hacking capitalism is, you know, definitely one of the legacies I hope to leave to my children, you know, is not a company that they could take over someday, but a different way that companies are run because my company showed a, a different way. As we, you know, kind of close the conversation and we talk about what you're looking to do in the next 20 years of your life, I have a feeling you're going to tell me something that I'm probably not thinking about. And I want to make sure that I am thinking about it and our listeners are thinking about it. Um, so as we're you know, closing out this conversation, what are the, what are, what's the thing or one, two or three things that you feel that you're looking at that we're probably not looking at that we should be? 
when people ask me like what what really worries me, you know, and what keeps me up at night, they're expecting some kind of cybersecurity answer. And it's really not. It's for me, it's climate change. Um, and, you know, the fact that we are not just increasing our dependence on technology that we have not been able to keep up with securing, but it's that technology hasn't delivered on the promise to make all of our lives easier. It has been unevenly distributed. So to me, I think um, you said, what do, I, what do I have planned in the next 20, 20 years? Uh, I call my hair color presidential pink for a reason. So I, you know, absolutely, I do feel like I have a lot more to give and, um, and a lot more to share in terms of my ideas about how things should be run. And, you know, as I get older and realize that the people in charge are not necessarily any smarter or more experienced. They just, you know, have intelligence in different areas and have experience in different areas and realizing, you know, kind of coming into my self-confidence at my age and realizing that I have a lot more to give. So to me, I think, you know, there's presidential pink, the pink house is in the future and, uh, You'll know who to vote for, you know, by noting the hacker candidate with the hot pink hair. <laughs> well, I will absolutely do that. I can't tell you enough how much I've appreciated this conversation. I've, I've teared up multiple times, which is a little embarrassing. Um, no, I've gotten verklempt during this combo as well. So you're not the only one. <laughs> honestly, Katie, you know, again, like, I've known who you were for a while. You've known who I was kind of a little bit since, you know, we've, we've been on a couple of stages together on, on clubhouse. What a great happy accident that was. I love serendipity and just, you know, the fact that, you know, yeah, lockdown happened and it just so happens that I realized that I also have a voice <laughs> and I was able to have a seat at the table with folks like you and, you're just, you're a leader in our industry. You're a pioneer. You've done such amazing things. And just want to thank you again for taking this much time out of your day uh, to share your insight and, you know, with the First Watch podcast. Um, but just want to thank you again for your, for your time and your input and absolutely can't wait to see what happens next. And I, yeah, well, you know, pay attention to presidential pink. <laughs> I think I've, you know, so my hair, my hairstylist mixes this color for me custom and I don't know what's in it, probably some radiation, but you know, <laughs> it's working. It's preserving me. It's fine. I'm hoping it's antiviral as well. We'll see. <laughs> I'm just tickled to death that we were able to have this conversation today. So thank you again. No, thanks so much for having me. And, um, I'm really happy that we got to have this conversation as well. And it's always good to talk to another Katie. That's it for First Watch today. My deepest thanks to my friend Katie Hanahan for stepping behind the mic to close out our series of interviews celebrating Women's History Month. Thank you also to the indomitable and inimitable Katie Masuris for her time and thoughtful conversation. To hear more interviews with leaders and more spotlight episodes, Subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, share on your socials or leave us a rating. It helps others find the show. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber with original music by Matias Safaletti and production help from Jamil Moffi. 
Until next time, stay safe, stay strong.